This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning, everyone. Thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, this week, uh, some of us, some of us who are uh, here today, uh, finished studying and discussing a recent book uh, by Roshi Joan Halifax, who's the abbot of Paya uh, Zen Center in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, and the title of the, of the book is Standing on the Edge. And, and I referred to this book, I think, in my very first Dharma talk here at Austin Zen Center. Um, I've been uh, living with this book for months now, maybe actually more than a year. And um, in that book, for those of you who haven't encountered it or weren't in the class, um, in that book she speaks uh, from her very long and varied life experiences in dealing with suffering, suffering of all kinds in many circumstances. And um, she identified five uh, states that she calls edge states that we can cultivate as bodhisattvas with our vow to relieve suffering. And these five states are altruism, empathy, integrity, respect, and engagement. She also considers their shadow sides or their flip sides, their negative sides even, qualities that are the other side of the positive qualities, things like empathic distress, uh, disrespect, burnout, and overwhelm. And the edge for her is where we balance, uh, for example, between empathy and overwhelm, between engagement and burnout, and so on. And I found it helpful, and I think many of us who are in the class found it helpful, that uh, Roshi Joan didn't suggest that the shadow sides of the positive states were some kind of failure, like a failure of our practice or a failure you know, to keep our vow, a failure of resolve, or even something to regret. Instead, she suggested that we could learn from falling off the edge and climb back up again to gain or regain a place of stability in which to discern the reality, which is no self and no other. And she closed with a final chapter on compassion in which she says, compassion is the ability to turn toward the truth of suffering with the wish to relieve that suffering. And that suffering, or sorry, excuse me, <laughs> suffering is, but compassion is central to being fully human. And, you know, although this book is two years old and was probably written the year before that, that is before the current national and international upheavals, she says that compassion is a key to reducing systemic oppression. So centering compassion in our practice is a way to balance our tendency, I think, uh, to wanna to control things. And so I wanna to talk today about control as a kind of central theme. The flip side of control is of course being controlled. And I think because of the discipline commitment it takes to practice Zen, to do Zazen, and to maintain the precepts at the heart of our practice, it may seem that our practice is about control. 
you know, if you are hanging around Austin Zen Center or if you've been around other Zen temples, you know we have these prescribed and formal ways to do everything that are carefully contrived, it seems contrived. And whether we love the forms of practice or we struggle with them, you know, they are forms which we are invited to take up and, and to put aside our usual and preferential ways. And our central practice is Zazen, in which we do not move, we do not speak, we face the wall, and we take up a bodily posture that we intentionally assume and maintain throughout the period of meditation. And all this can seem like a regime of control when we start, especially. Although, you know, like many of us are instantly seduced by this and just want to be told and master exactly what to do, right? We want to join that club. But resistance can arise and a feeling of coercion, including of ourselves, by ourselves. And there are many ways in which we may try to control ourselves in so many facets of our life. What we eat or drink, our work habits, and our various activities. And then there is the control of things and of other sentient beings when we have the chance. We may find we are often in a dynamic with others, that is, a kind of struggle about whose views, whose desires, agenda, values, and needs come forth, come first. And this is in ourselves, in our homes, in our sangha, and now in the streets. Often we chafe at being controlled or being told to control ourselves. And I think as, as Westerners, as people living in a Western modern society, as Americans, we resist being watched and having our behavior, our appearance, the way we dress, or really anything about ourselves, controlled, commented on, or criticized. We resist being told what to do or think, how to act, how to be. And we believe freedom is to not be controlled, but to be ourselves, you know, free from coercion and free from norms that are antithetical to who we are, or worse than just antithetical, you know, that do violence. All of us want to be free and to speak our truth. And that is being human with other humans. So for the rest of this talk, I wanna talk about control in the context of the precepts and how to practice with being human, with other human beings, actually with other non-human beings. It's the same thing, although humans are more complicated, they just are. And I'll be trying to point to the interplay of control with other aspects of practice and especially with patience and with compassion. So first about control in the teachings of the Buddha. You know, control is actually something that we are encouraged to employ in the early texts that preserve Buddha's teaching in the suttas, <clears throat> which speak of controlling the mind. And I, I did investigate the actual uh, original wording of this to see if control was really the word. Because sometimes, you know, we are trapped by our translations. I'm not a Sanskritist, but, um, <clears throat> and I don't read Pali or any of those ancient languages, but it is control. And this seems artificial and coercive to our ears, or it may, it does to mine, you know, 
controlling your mind. Mind control. <laughs> Until we remember that the purpose of this control is non-harming. Not to harm ourselves or others with speech, action, or thought. The three ways in which we create karma with our intentional action. And controlling ourselves is especially emphasized in teaching, teachings about speaking. Right? Speech is one of the elements of the Buddha's Eightfold Path. And it's further defined there as, uh, <clears throat> that is to say, not right speech, wrong speech, um, unskillful speech is lying, slander, harsh speech, chatter, uh-oh, idle chatter, <laughs> and more. And while the suttas urge us to control ourselves, they actually do so emphasizing harmony rather than obedience. And it's this harmony that lies at the center of Buddhist ethics, at the, Buddhist, at the center of the Buddhist precepts, which we practice with as well. Now, sometimes the suttas suggest that we abandon an unwholesome state that has already arisen despite our efforts at control um, and despite our efforts at mindfulness. And abandoning something has a different nuance to me than control, as does the word refrain or abstain, as in to refrain or abstain from lying or some other unwholesome action. And I think those words convey the spirit of what these instructions are about. In Zen, we have the 16 Bodhisattva precepts, our ethical precepts, and the ones uh, that list all the things that we don't do, the so-called 10 grave precepts, a subset of the 16, uh, sound especially to people new to practice, something like the 10 commandments, and then they carry the baggage of that along with them. You know, in our translation, we say, for example, a Buddha, a disciple of Buddha does not, and then there's something we, are, we don't do. And they do sound like prohibitions, like a disciple of Buddha does not. That's the first precept. And the precepts can also be expressed as vows. For example, I vow not to kill, and then expressed in a positive sense, but to uphold life. Again, two sides. The 16 precepts that we practice with include not lying, not slandering, not praising self and disparaging others. And these are all explicitly about speech, you know, about talking. I was struck by that when I first started studying them, that you know, these are expressed as separate precepts. And we are encouraged to offer kind speech. Dogen, the 13th century uh, of our era, the 13th century founder of our Soto Zen way of practice, mentions kind speech in his essay, Bodhisattva Shishobo, which is the four methods of guidance. And these four methods that he recommends to, to us, to bodhisattvas, are giving, kind speech, beneficial action, and what he calls identity action. And Dogen speaks of arousing the mind of compassion and offering kind speech whenever you see sentient beings. So Dogen links here compassion and kind speech. Now, speech is definitely a human thing. We rely on speech to communicate personally and also across time and space. That's why we have the words of the Buddha. Somebody kept 
speaking them until they got written down. Anyone who spends any time with me <laughs> will know that one of my karmic characteristics is wordiness. I made my living on words and right now I am using words to offer something about the Dharma and you are listening to and being affected by my words, but also how I'm offering them, even over Zoom. Um, you know, there's something in my tone, I hope, my pitch, my phrasing, um, my gestures, my facial expressions that is communicated along with the words. So the words don't exist in a vacuum. And in our practice, stillness and silence, when I sit zazen, not speaking and not moving, I notice the words, the torrents of words that arise. It's very characteristic of my mind. And I feel some great relief and freedom when they recede in zazen, when they recede. They don't always easily recede. Words trip me up, my own words and those of others and how they affect me. And I'm saying all this because maybe you experience something of this too. So I am grateful to have Dogen's emphasis on compassion. Uh, he doesn't say control, he says compassion as the ground of right speech. Or as he says when speaking of kind speech, he says, Dogen, kind mind arises from the seed of compassionate mind. And it is this kind mind that expresses kind speech. You know, because honestly, when someone exhorts us to kind speech in a Buddhist context, in a Zen context, as a kind of instruction, although I can't find any fault with that teaching, I have some subtle resistance to it. Like I'm supposed to be following some kind of script. You know, and this may be to some limit in my practice and understanding but I think it's also from some deep social and cultural conditioning. You know, it's being a woman um, and resisting from a very early age, being told how I should be expressing myself as a girl. Right? Girls act this way. They say this, these things. They don't do these other things. But I've also heard some very experienced practitioners, including senior teachers, express resistance to a kind of educated, privileged, white Protestant version of Buddhist kind speech. And that's how they characterized it. It's not how I'm characterizing it. Um, that did not feel authentic to them. The kind of speech that avoids the truth of their experience and doesn't call out wrong uses of power or that is actually abusive. Even if it's offered in calm and quiet tones, it can still be off the mark in some way. The individuals who express this dis-ease with this kind of speech, or even deep anger, very deep anger, at this notion of kind, gentle speech, sometimes identify themselves as from working backgrounds, or they were persons of color, or from different cultures, which had different ways of expression. And they experienced the imperative to kind speech to be a kind of violence. The flip side is that I have also heard individuals who grew up in situations of harsh or aggressive speech at home or in various settings or physical violence. I've heard these people express the relief they felt at entering a practice space where an attempt was being made to control angry speech and to use kind words, even if it seemed to be a sort of act 
you know, like fake it till you make it. Katagiri Roshi, um, who's, in our, uh, who's in a parallel lineage to ours, in his book, Returning to Silence, opens up Dogen's teaching on kind speech as one of the four methods of guidance. And I found this very helpful. And so I wanna quote Katagiri. He says, kind speech is not merely speaking with an ingratiating voice, like a cat purring. This way of speaking very naturally, consciously or unconsciously is trying to get a favor by fawning or flattering. This is not kind speech, says Katagiri. Katagiri says, kind speech is not the usual sense of kindness. It can appear in various ways, but we should remember it must constantly be based on compassion. Under all circumstances, that compassion is always giving somebody support or help or a chance to grow. And that's the end of the quote. This kind of compassion may not look like compassion to us, to the person on the receiving end. Um, Tension Reb Anderson recounts the story of Master Ma in Tang Dynasty China, who shouted so loudly at his disciple Bai Zhang, out of compassion, trying to wake him up, that Bai Zhang was deaf for three days. And as both of these men were great Zen masters, we are asked to understand that this violence was an act of compassionate kind speech. Right? This may be kind of difficult to accept. It requires great faith and it doesn't always work out because we can't control what happens. And an illustration of this is another story in which a student wanted to go to another teacher, wanted to leave his original teacher and study with someone else. And the student's original master sent him off with a letter to the other teacher, a letter which characterized the student's understanding as limited and the student as having limited capability, right? This is the recommendation <laughs> to the, the new teacher. He was telling the truth, he thought. But the student's encounter with the new teacher went so badly because of this letter that the student went insane and his original teacher always regretted this letter and his mistake with this student. So, you know, I attended a session with Red uh, Tenshin Roshi last year. And in the course of it, he said, you can't control anything. You can't even control yourself. And the first part of this statement seemed to me to be self-evidently true. You can't control anything. We have the illusion of control sometimes. You know, like when we make some effort and we have some success and we thought, gee, look, I'm controlling things and it's going well. And we keep on contriving things to go our way. And we think we can live directing things to happen or not happen. Um, this has been my experience. I've spent a great deal of time trying to control things, sometimes in my professional life, or trying to make everybody like me, or trying to persuade people of my point of view. You know, that's built into my upbringing and also into my training as an academic to strive and to persuade. But I've also lived long enough now to see the outcomes of many of my attempts to steer things and myself. And it seemed clear to me when I heard Reb speak those words that we can't control anything. And when we try, we can actually create harm. But at the same time, you know, control, if you feel something slipping away from you, like you're running late, something, I'm talking about minor things, you're running late, 
or you know, the meal you're making doesn't work out, right? What happens if you just let go in those moments where there's maybe not so much at stake? This is um, something that Cohen France talks about in one of his essays. He says, what happens? Just pause for a moment and ask, what will happen if I just let this be? And when you don't really know what's gonna happen, there's a kind of wonder in that. But I would add, it's profoundly scary in those moments. And it can be hard to discern when to exercise some agency, right? How do we discern that? How do we discern when we should actually, you know, try to do something or when we should do something? How to allow things to unfold without fabricating reality for ourselves, when to act, how to let other beings be. The second part of, of Tenshin Roshi's statement, you can't even control yourself. You know, I heard that and it wasn't directed just at me, but I didn't take it as a criticism. It just seemed true, right? You know, even though in the context of a five day silent retreat, we actually are all dealing with various impulses where we, we are trying not to fall asleep. We're trying not to talk. We're trying not to run out of the room. We're trying not to fantasize and so on all day long. That rather than control to the approach to these things is more like allowing them to be, right? Without being carried off or afflicted. There is a Zen teaching, after all, on not controlling anything, not pushing away our thoughts or feelings, not even controlling our breath. And that has been a kind of foundation of my practice over the years. So my response to Tension's statement about not being able to control even myself, I thought he was thinking, well, talking about like aging or sickness or dying. Nope, I can't control those things. But I actually think that Tension Roshi's meaning goes beyond this. And beyond just refraining from impulse, like, or forcing our bodies and minds to behave. You know, I've been thinking about this for more than a year, and many things in my life have seemed to spiral out of control during that time. Um, but something else that Tenshin Roshi said at another retreat came up as I was thinking about these things together, and that is, in all things, in all circumstances and situations, remember compassion. So Tenshin Roshi's been uh, thinking about the six perfections, the six paramitas for a long time, and he published a book last year or early this year, um, The Perfections of Practice, and uh, he relates these to the precepts. And just as a reminder, the six paramitas are giving, ethics, patience, joyful effort, concentration, or zazen, and wisdom. And he unfolds more of this topic of control and relates it to patience, the third paramita, and to compassion, which arises from the last paramita, from wisdom. He says in this book, to live our lives on the path of the Buddhas, we have to let go of our fears of personal suffering and of not being in control of our lives. Otherwise, fear will undermine the bodhisattva life of vow and compassion and compassionate action. To follow this path, he presents patience as a key factor for awakening. So now we have patience, finally. Tenshin Roshi defines patience as being present and generous with our experience. And of course, generosity is the first of the paramitas. 
He says, when we can be present with heat and cold, tiredness and sleepiness, or with people attacking us, we develop our capacity to also be present with the emptiness of phenomena. If we are patient, we don't move toward emptiness. We don't turn away from it. We don't try to control ourselves to prevent turning away, turning toward or turning away from anything. This is the active activity of generosity functioning within patience. But he explicitly warns us against fusing, confusing patience with self-control. He says that we may think we are protecting others when we control our reactions to some things. But he suggests that instead, when we find ourselves attempting to control our feelings of fear, anger, or frustration, we remember our wish to be generous, ethical, and patient in our dealings with ourselves and with others. Instead of attempting to control others or ourselves, we return to our aspiration to express an appropriate and compassionate response. And he says, trying to control people and situations is stressful and draining. Patient compassion is not draining. And Roshi Joan says the same thing. If you're experiencing true compassion, it does not exhaust you. If we practice compassion in all circumstances, we have to extend it to ourselves as well. Control of anyone, including ourselves, is not conducive to liberation. We can practice what Hui Neng, the sixth Chinese ancestor of Zen, says about our vow to liberate all beings. He suggests we liberate or we vow to liberate all the beings in our minds. We welcome the difficult states as guests and invite them to sit with us. Fear, confusion, depression, illness, impulses to control with thorough and compassionate attention. And I was greatly you know, encouraged to read uh, Tension's words which, uh, about this. He says, in this teaching, there is no end process of awakening and no final damnation. <laughs> there are only temporary damnations so that our lapse becomes a part of the process of learning the true Dharma. And that, again, to me, echoes uh, Roshi Jones' idea of falling off the edge and constantly returning. The practices of compassion, founded in the insight into the truth of impermanence, interdependence, the fullness of emptiness, the full, its fullness with all dharmas, the total lack of independent self, which is wisdom, can help us find an appropriate response. And the response may be refraining as well as acting, remaining silent as well as speaking, cultivating awareness in Zazen so that we can discern reality and live our vows is how we practice for the benefit of all beings. Um, while I was preparing this talk, I came across a quote from a disciple of Shohaka Okumura, whose name is Kaikyo Robi. I, I never met this person. And it inspired me a great deal as I tried to sort out my own feelings, my own um, attitudes uh, towards all these teachings and come to some integrative, hopefully helpful understanding. Um, I think this is a really helpful thing to hear, um, this person's words at this time. And so I wanna quote uh, them to you. Um, Kaikyo Robi said, I firmly believe that the heart of the world is a bodhisattva heart. 
I believe that we find bodhisattvas in the three times and in the 10,000 directions, as well as in every spiritual and religious tradition. I believe bodhisattvas quietly and serenely, and maybe some other times more noisily, all according to their lives, time, and causes and conditions. Bodhisattvas have worked, are working, and will continue to work for the sake of all existences beyond space and time into infinity. She says, the truth is that this faith and profound feeling are beyond words, but words are as well precious instruments because they allow us to share and find common ground in our life and community. Without words, how could we have been reached and touched by the teachings? Being a bodhisattva is not only wanting to do good and putting others first. It requires as well learning, little by little, experience after experience, teacher after teacher, how, where, and when to do good. Or simply put, how and when to act appropriately for the benefit of others as our main motivation. As Avalokiteshvara has a hand for everyone and for every circumstance, the Bodhisattva with all her heart and body needs to experience and learn when to talk, act, or remain quiet and do nothing. If this is for the benefit of all beings, it's the end of this long quote. And I found out after I uh, copied that down that Kaikyo Robi died in 2018. And um, I wanted to share her inspiration. Um, I think those are wonderful words to carry with us. Thank you very much. Questions or comments or anything to add or offer? I'm, there's plenty of time. We're on two, um, two pages of two screens worth of people. So I'm, I'm gonna have to navigate back and forth to, uh, to see you all. You can also just unmute if you wanna say something. Yes, uh, Joro. Yeah, hi, Tim. I really um, appreciated you kind of pointing out different kinds of speech and how they can be kind of culturally imbued. Um, uh, Choro and I were both at the Branching Streams Conference last year in Milwaukee. And I remember uh, Michaela in her presentation speaking about this. Um, you know, from her point of view, growing up in, a, I think, an Italian family in, in the Bronx or Long Island, that discussion, family discussions involved, you know, lots of gesture and, and loud projection and, um, and how that's normal, you know, and how that's perceived normal in that environment. And then, you know, I guess the question is, like, how do we, as Zen practitioners, um, Kind of allow for all of these different kinds of expression and yet maintain this kind of aim at mindfulness or at settling or something. Um, it seems that sometimes our effort at settling and, and, and being calm can feel obtrusive or overly controlling or something. Yeah, thank you for that question. And it's actually, uh, I think where this really first came forward was not that branching streams meeting, but the one before which was in um, Chicago, and Bruce was there for that one. 
And there was a kind of meltdown <laughs> in that meeting um, because uh, one person felt oppressed by uh, and suppressed by a practice leader who was, who's, I mean, a very senior person whose function was to keep the schedule, you know, to, to cut off discussion at a certain time. And this person experienced that intervention as violence and patriar a patriarchal move. It was a woman who was speaking um, and all kinds of stuff came up. All, I mean, it was like the rest of the breakout groups for the whole day and into the next day, there was, not, there was just a big conversation about what had happened. And, you know, I'm not going to name names or, or talk about the specifics of it all, but, you know, Peg Syverson was there who was offering a workshop on right use of power. And so we turned it into a moment to talk about right use of power a little bit later on. Um, but it was in that context that I heard other people say that, you know, the expression and emotionality that was being suppressed as it was experienced by the person who was, who was asked to stop talking as suppression of her very deep response to suffering. In this case, she was talking about, um, you know, at the time that the crisis was about the detention of immigrants. And um, this one person said, I grew up in a family that was screaming at each other all the time and shouting and there was physical violence. And so when I entered the space of San Francisco Zen Center where people were quiet and calm and, and asked to refrain from this kind of speech, it was a great relief and it felt like an oasis of safety. So I get at both things, you know, how do we, how do, we do this? <laughs> um, and especially as we, as we advocate for and work towards diversity and equity and inclusion, right? Sometimes our, our communities, our sanghas, are experienced as, you know, that this the norm is white. That this calmness and kind speech is not real, and it's and it's an expression of, you know, as I said, privileged white, even identified as Protestant, right? If you came from a big Italian family, you were probably Catholic, you know, speech. Right? So it's a real challenge, and I think it's I think it's good to know that good to keep in mind that truly kind, compassionate speech may not look quiet, right? It may not be quiet. It may be, you know, full of gestures and full of explosive, <laughs> you know, emotion sometimes. And we all need to learn, you know, how to, how to discern. I, I certainly grew up in the kind of family Michaela did, although one that was loving, but it was loud. So sitting zazen was a, for me, although I talk a lot, it was a refuge from that. Yeah, thank you for your question. Anyone else? Yes, um, I Hi, struggle um, having grown up in a loud family uh, with remembering my compassion. I indulge in anger a lot and I uh, want to fight it to remember my compassion through gratitude to that end thank you so much for the light that you bring thank you for bringing yourself to us in your light 
I would like to say something of, about speech. So I grew up in a family, um, a lot of kids, and uh, we all competed for attention and um, with our parents. And uh, when I came to Zen, I noticed the first thing was you were allowed to complete a sentence. Um, and people were quiet and actually listening and it was very difficult for me to allow other people to talk because I wanted to like, and I seemed like I interrupted people a lot, but I'm, that's one of my practices is to be aware and have patience and, and listen. And, and I think Zen has helped me with that. And I just wanted to share that. Thanks, Sherry. Thank you. Yeah. Deep listening. Um. I understand about you're saying we're not in control of anything and yet it appears that we're in control uh, of quite a lot actually i mean we can we're in control to decide whether we're going to wear a mask when we go out or not which affects us and a lot of other people so i'm just i can't quite get my 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 mind around that we're not in control of anything. Could you talk some more about that? Because it certainly doesn't appear that way. I think it doesn't mean that we can't make intentional choices based on, you know, acting out of uh, concern for others as well as for ourselves. So, you know, I wear a mask um, whenever I go out, maybe not when I'm out walking or something like that, you know, but definitely when I go into a, a place where there are other people, mm -hmm. and I always have one, you know, with me if I'm we have them in the car. We have them in, you know, every, we have them every place that we will see them before we leave the house. But I think the lack of control is it doesn't mean that you aren't going to get sick. You may still get sick. Mm -hmm. And without knowing it, you know, you may be a carrier um, and you may inadvertently get someone sick, even though you're wearing a mask, you know, it's effective on a hundred percent. So mm -hmm. I think, and we don't know, right? So we act out of, our best understanding of what is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And that's true of everything, you know, that we, we don't always know the effects of things. And sometimes they're exactly the opposite of our intention when we were trying to quote control something like our risk of getting sick. You know, one thing that I've been thinking about is uh, how many billions of discarded masks and gloves and all this disposable stuff you know where all that stuff goes, uh, ultimately, you know, it, a lot of it will end up in the ocean, perhaps, right? So in our attempts to protect ourselves and others, to save lives, ours and, our, and, and others, we're generating this tremendous amount of waste, and it can't be helped. It cannot be helped, right? So it's always this and that, you know, there's two sides to everything, and I think we just stay with as much as possible our intention and just knowing we can't control the outcome always. That's how I think of it anyway. And did you have something? Yes, I want to go back to one of the first things you talked about and how you have tended to use persuasion to try to control people. And I find that I've gotten myself into a lot of trouble trying to use power of persuasion and it's usually well 
So I have a tendency to want everybody to know about things that are like climate change would be an example. And I want people to pay attention and know the seriousness of it, but I don't know if it's kind speech. Um, Cause I, I, I don't always get really good responses or positive responses. People find it very unkind actually a lot of the time. I don't know if you can talk a little bit about how to, how to be honest um, about serious issues with people, but not be controlling. Um, yeah, I'm trying to, you know, for me, it's, it, it, I think of it as an act of compassion, but it's not coming across that way. <laughs> you know, there are a couple of things about this to me anyway. I mean, one of them is there's intention, right? Stay with your intention, but you also have to own the outcome as well, right? Your intention to bring forward something you think is critically important, to offer information, whatever, whatever it is. And you, you feel it's deeply kind and compassionate, but it's not being received that way. So acknowledge that it isn't being received that way, you know, and then, you know, a, you have to discern whether in a circumstance like, you know, whether it's with a family member or a friend or some public situation, whether the thing to do is to speak about it at that time or how to speak about it. You know, sometimes we find ourselves with an opportunity because someone else brings up something that is like incontrovertible, some issue, you know, that's incontrovertible. Although nothing is incontrovertible anymore. People create their own realities and are totally resistant to, you know, information. But, you know, it's just constantly picking yourself up and climbing back up to that edge and saying, try again, you know, how, did, how, is, how can I be skillful with this? And that's why I think we're, you know, we're being urged to action on so many fronts now that, you know, we have to do something and we're being implored, you know, by many people, do something, right? The, the something is the question, what is the something? And sometimes it's holding back. It's sometimes it's listening, really deeply listening. You know, sometimes it's just putting in a word or two and, letting it see if it takes root, see if there's an opening, you know, and that's why it's a continuous practice and it's never over. <laughs> it's just constantly arising. And we, it takes a lot of courage not to be discouraged. So thank you for talking about climate change. There's so many things that are getting, feel like they're getting lost in these ongoing, uh, you know, ever growing disasters that we're facing. But we need to, maintain our connection to things, all things. Anyone else? Oh, Tracy? Good morning, Choro. Nice to see you. Hi, Tracy. Good to see you. Hey, could I ask you, uh, I have a question, but I, just a quickie personal question. Did you, did you spend much time with Leslie James? Did you study with her, the abiding teacher at Tassajara? I have known Leslie for a long time because I've dropped in and out of Tassajara in the summers for a long time, like 20 mm. years. Yeah. Um, and I did three practice periods at Tassajara and she was there. So okay. yeah, a lot of practice discussion with, with her, but not like concentrated years of exposure. Yeah. A teacher of mine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It just, at the beginning of your talk, you just somehow she was coming through you to me. I don't know why. <laughs> I think uh, just a tone of voice or something. I don't know. Um, 
Yeah, thank you for your talk today. Um, my, I don't know if you even know if it's a question, um, but you were talking about Reb and letting go and not controlling and allowing and and it, 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 at one point you said uh, something about when that happens, some people's reactions might be that it's scary is one possibility. And uh, so much for me has also been that it is um, relieving, tremendously relieving, right? As a, um, you know, like as an, oh, I'm not suffering like I was just a moment ago. <laughs> um, and and I, I've noticed it, it, it has started to become, it started to give way a little bit to, well, this is getting kind of ordinary now to, let's just say, my small mind. And, uh, and this is not, uh, oh, and this is actually not interesting. As in, basically, where am I in this? Oh, I'm not here, therefore, this is not interesting. I'm going back to, well, my version of on the seat controlling of, I'll just think about this, I'll think about that, and we'll go do da 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 Have you noticed that at all? <laughs> Every morning. Okay. <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah, you just always have to come back. You know, we, we want yeah. to wander off and we just, the whole practice is coming back. You yeah. Know, 99 times missing the mark, right? 9900. Yeah. We just keep coming back. Yeah. 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 Right now, one thing I'm missing, I'll just say it is, uh, you know, there's, we're all at home. I'm at home all the time, you know, Zoom, Zazen, and not doing too much else outside of the home. And it's sort of easy to fall into just home mind. I, I feel like I'm itching to do a retreat, you mm. know, and it's hard to do those at home. You know, I feel the need to kind of settle into longer, more continuous Zazen to try to, that's when that monkey mind comes for me it's just going back to the cushion you know period after period yes maybe that maybe that will be possible in the coming months to do something. yeah we'll have a practice period in the fall i this oh, wonderful here i mean at austin's end understood thank you for that offering pat pat yingst is a good good person to talk to about these things too i think tim is also very good with their offerings of being online to be doing something more extended with that coming back yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Maureen, were you unmuting? Hey, Charles. Um, I, I wasn't unmuting. Um, I, uh, you know, this topic of, of control and will to me is just fundamental um, to kind of like an intellectual interest of mine historically, like in philosophy and stuff, you know, and culturally. Um, to me, it plays into 12 steps and addiction, which, you know, is part of, I think, interestingly coming up in this um, Zen tradition as well. But I'm so glad that you talked about it. Um, one of the things I got from you is like how you distinguish between um, exerting control and maybe letting go. And um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. One of the things I heard is like in terms of and I know letting go has a lot of meanings, you know, it's on probably cards and Hallmark cards and stuff like that. But 
but, but accepting and being patient um, is kind of a relinquishment, um, but not in a kind of passive giving up way compared to say, for me, control, I feel a sense of exertion, you know, kind of, kind of like, a, a, you know, just, just very willful exertion and frustration. And so um, all that to say, I appreciate your focusing on this particular topic and um, anything else you can say about that, I'd appreciate. Uh, yeah, thank you. I'm glad it resonated with you. Um, you know, towards the end of the book, uh, Roshi Joan talks about the violence, the violent reaction that people have when they are, when they lose control, some of them. And, you know, that violence of reaction, I think we're kind of witnessing, you know, the kind of backlash to, from the top about uh, the possibility of losing control of things, of events, of, uh, you know, of us. So, yeah, I think when control feels rigid and tight and when you're deeply threatened by losing control and not being able to control outcomes in particular, um, that is a sign that, you know, it's control, right? <laughs> really, it's, that, it's, not, it's not a positive thing. It's this trying to maintain something that can't be maintained because our, the primary teaching is, is impermanence, right? Um, whereas letting go is gentler, you know, opening. And um, sometimes the things we think are intolerable and we can't accept, and yet there they are, right? You know, it can be a personal tragedy. It can be the worst kind of societal, you know, spasm of violence and hatred. And we don't want this and we want to reject it. And how do we open to things that we just think we can't open to? You know, and then you discover something. You know, there's this discovery when you fall off the edge. So um, some of my relinquishment is just that I'm getting older, you know, and there are things I can't do or do the way I want to here we are, <laughs> you know, it's much easier for me to say, okay, this is really the way things are. And it's, and that's it. You know, I can't maintain this self surprise. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Are there, is there another question or comment? Uh, Bruce. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that really resonates with me is this question, this, this point of silence at certain moments as being the most skillful form of kind speech, you know, not saying something. And the particular issue I have, or the particular way that, that manifests, comes up for me is this sort of self-skepticism about Am I, am I dressing up my reluctance to engage as the noble, as, as this, you know, I'm being kind by not saying anything versus I'm avoiding confrontation by not saying anything. I mean, it may be kind, certainly if in a particular moment I can't speak without venting and dumping on, on the person I, that I would be speaking to. But that's just, and I'm not necessarily asking, I, I, don't, I don't think it's something, I don't think this is a question that lends itself to a, a, a quick or simple answer. I'm mainly identifying this as a dynamic that's true for me and maybe true for other people as well. That I think this, this is kind of an edge state for me 
in a sense. Like I get into a potential conversation or confrontation and have to try to discern in that moment, is there something to say? Is this a time that I can say it? Can I, am I even able to speak? Do I, do I have some perceived obligation or duty to speak? Or am I just trying to make myself feel good about not speaking because I'm really avoiding it, but I want to think that it's a good, like I'm actually bestowing my restraint upon the situation. So that, I, I think that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. I'm sure. And I think uh, you already kind of know, you know, you're aware, I think, when you're doing one or the other. And then you can choose. Do I want to hide out? You know, am I, I'm hiding out. Okay. Maybe that's the best thing to do right now. You know, I think Melanie might have had her hand up or wanted to say something. Are you here, Melanie? Yes, thank you. Yeah. I've really appreciated hearing your talk and all the things that people have said. Um, this really is a theme for me right now. And I think the idea of resistance and control certainly a theme for me and as a woman and as a girl I uh, resonated with what you said about you know girls or women are supposed to talk this way or be this way you know I always resisted that but I resist everything <laughs> <laughs> I mean as soon as I like you said you know when you first you embrace it you want to learn everything you want to do zazen perfectly you want to sit perfectly straight you want to do the forms if that is how it happens for you but then after that, it's it's all about the resistance. I mean, in my mind, I'm always thinking about the opposite of what people say. Like, well, what if this is true? You know, I'm always looking for something other. But, but I also think it's not really that it's happening to me. It's happening in me. You know, it's like, it's just kind of the way I'm wired. And so, it, that, and what you offered that I thought was really helpful to me was the idea that um, not that you impose some control on yourself, but that you make a vow or a commitment. You know, like you flip it a different way. And and what I'm thinking about recently is, well, this is supposed to be about liberation. You know, the idea, but I want to be myself, um, and you're trying to control me, or this is trying to control me, or whatever, is really um, the, the, the reason that I started doing this was because of liberation. And that's different because then you have to examine yourself because it feels kind of juvenile to me to think about it in terms of me and control and who's doing what to me or the world is doing this to me. So I really appreciated that. And sorry, because I usually never have a question. I just want to talk. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your comment. And, um, you know, I don't also I want to say that I, I really don't want to ignore or or bypass, you know, the, the injustice that some forms of control of other people really is, you know, I mean, I think we all know what I'm talking about. That, yes, I agree. Right. So, but I think that the ways that which we can work with ourselves, we all, <clears throat> excuse me, all, all that all of us have are ourselves. You know, where can we find liberation in ourselves? And I really liked your, your notion of things happening in you, you know, as well as to is how you receive whatever you're receiving that you can work with 
you know, even if you can't control what's happening, how can you receive what's happening? And um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good distinction. So thank you. Well, thank you all very much for being here this morning and listening and offering your comments and support to each other. <laughs>